In the early 1800s, around 200 years ago now, there was a band of roving machine workers in the textile mills. The contagion started in Nottingham, but it quickly spread to Yorkshire and much of the rest of industrial England. This was the nation that was industrialising faster than anywhere else, the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution that had shaped the world ever since. And the people, at the cutting edge of that revolution, were smashing up the machines that had made it possible. The Luddite movement has been shrouded in myth and misunderstanding since it first started. Of course, this is appropriate. It's named after Ned Ludd, a semi-mythical figure who first tried to smash up his spinning jenny and run amok in the industrial towns of England. No one knows exactly who the inspiration for the original Ned Ludd figure was. There may have been a neighbour with a similar name who destroyed machinery in a fit of passion, but he certainly didn't lead the vast rebellion that he's rumoured to have done. To authorities at the time, though, Ned Ludd wasn't a mythical figure. Richard Conniff, in his excellent article for the Smithsonian magazine, What the Luddites Really Fought For, please go read it, he describes him thus. Ned Ludd, also known as Captain, General, or even King Ludd, first turned up as part of a Nottingham protest in November 1811, and was soon on the move from one industrial centre to the next. This elusive leader clearly inspired the protesters, and his apparent command of unseen armies, drilling by night, also spooked the forces of law and order. Government agents made finding him a consuming goal. In one case, a militiaman reported that spotting the dread general with a pike in his hand, like a sergeant's halbert, and a face that was a ghostly, unnatural white. End quote. Mythical or not, the time was right for the legend of Ned Ludd to spread. Britain was in dark financial times due to the pressure of the Napoleonic Wars, and at the same time automated machinery was causing unemployment amongst the skilled craftsmen who had once made their living in the factory. They were bitter, and eager to fight for what they viewed as their rights. The rebellion grew until it had to be suppressed by military force. And with the frame-breaking act of 1812, industrial sabotage of this kind was made punishable by death. Since then, Luddite has come to mean anyone who hates, or is at least highly suspicious of, technology and its impact on society. People will use it to jokingly refer to themselves if they don't use email or have smartphones, both of which are becoming increasingly unimaginable by the day for most of us. Neo-Luddism is a movement that's taken on a little more force recently. You have to be careful using labels and trying to define them in a few sentences, because they invariably encompass a huge range of views. Neo-Luddites in the modern era range from people who believe the world is better off without technology, like the infamous Unabomber Ted Kaczynski. He was a highly intelligent mathematician who dropped out of his promising academic career to, well, live in the woods and pursue a campaign of terrorist attacks. In a sprawling manifesto, he opined, quote, The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. The continued development of technology will worsen the situation. Things will advance towards its logical conclusion, which is complete control over everything on Earth, including human beings and all other important organisms. Obviously, this is a very extreme example. Other neo-Luddites stress that they're not against technology per se, but they question the common mode of thinking that's current amongst people. Economic growth and technological progress are always good. Some neo-Luddites think that we should rely less on technology. Others think that certain avenues of technological development, the ones that clearly have deleterious or dangerous effects, should be shut down. Others still think that it's our relationship to technologies that need to change. But being anti-technology full stop is really a stretch. 
It's difficult when you see how much it's done for us. I don't think many Neoludites believe that all technological progress is bad. Call them techno-skeptics rather than technophobes. And this they actually have in common with the first wave of Luddites. You see, they didn't hate technology per se either. Everyone was in favour of progress, and they liked the fancy machines, they just had different ideas about what progress meant. What annoyed the Luddites was that more advanced machines had taken all of the skill out of weaving and textile work. This meant that a skilled worker could be replaced by a less skilled worker with a better machine. And crucially, then you could pay the unskilled worker less because there were far more of them to go around. Consequently, the skilled workers found themselves forced out, victims of automation. And this is almost the opposite of what a lot of us are expecting at the moment. The idea that in fact it's the people with the specific skills who become less valuable, rather than the unskilled individuals who are made completely redundant. We see the ghosts of Ned Ludd in the debate about automation that's going on at the moment. In many ways, this is one of the defining economic facts of our time. When people look to understand the rise of Donald Trump in the US, of course it's very complicated and his constant race baiting makes it difficult to argue that racism didn't play a part. But you can hardly argue that America's dwindling manufacturing industry didn't also have a huge role. The idea of supporting the coal miner that he did throughout his campaign. There are only 50,000 coal miners in the US, so that's hardly enough to sway an election, even if a lot of them do live in swing counties. The point was that this was symbolic of a whole manufacturing industry that's being squeezed to death by a combination of automation and outsourcing. It used to be that you could get a decent living in these jobs. And now, because of automation and outsourcing, you can't. Trump proposed protectionist trade policies to stop manufacturing jobs from moving abroad. But he never mentioned automation. He never questioned whether perhaps the fact that companies are allowed to do pretty much anything that will profit their shareholders drives automation. He never questioned technological progress, even as he tugged at people's nostalgia for an age before we had as much technology progress as we do today. Luddite has become almost an insult in our techno-utopian age. You either get with the times and accept the relentless pace of technological change, or you're crushed under the wheels of the tech train. There are no alternatives. But according to some, automation has only just begun. According to a famous report, The Future of Employment, that came out of Oxford in 2013, they estimated that 47% of jobs in the US, and by extension much of the Western world, are at risk of being automated in the next 20 years. Of course, there is a very big difference on the ground between this job has the potential to be automated in the next 20 years, and you're fired but say hi to your robot replacement on the way out. Even so, if you consider the sheer magnitude of social change that would occur if half of all jobs, 25% of all jobs, or even 10% of all jobs, disappeared in a couple of decades, you'll begin to see the issue. Fundamentally, the allures of automation have always been the same. You don't have to pay the robot. Instead of 8 hours a day, 5 days a week, with time off for lunch and holidays, it can work 24 hours with incredible consistency. You can get far more productivity. Take this article, quote, Changying Precision Technology Company might be the model for the future of manufacturing. Its mobile phone company used to employ 650 workers. Now it needs just 60. The company eliminated 90% of its human workforce and replaced it with 60 robot arms. Productivity increased 250%, while product defects decreased 80%. People are even starting to dream of so-called lights-out manufacturing. 
Things are turned over entirely to the machines that can furiously operate 24-7, with occasional breaks for maintenance. Most of the time, no humans will be in the factory at all. She might as well turn the lights off and leave the air conditioning off as well. A robot doesn't complain, or retire, or move to a different company. In the case of artificial intelligence, things can get even more ridiculous. Tasks that formerly took weeks can be accomplished in minutes. The real limit can often be just how much processing power you have. Quoting from the press release from that Oxford study. Quote, The research found that jobs in transportation, logistics, as well as office and administrative support are at high risk of automation. More surprisingly, occupations within the service industry are also susceptible, despite recent job growth in this sector. This widely arises alongside developments in machine learning and mobile robotics. I'm something of a robo-skeptic at the moment, partly because I spent a few months at an internship researching the state of the art in human robotics, and it seems like there are a lot of technical challenges before we can really make something that's useful in a wide variety of situations. If you don't believe me, go and look up RoboCup at Home, where teams of university robotics students compete in tasks that are effectively trying to build and program a robot butler. You'll see robots trying to act as tour guides, even trying to make breakfast. You'll also notice that even the robots that win the competition are far from being perfect butlers. Even the tasks that they are very carefully controlled and simplified, they can take far, far longer to do than any human would take. And you can imagine that in an uncontrolled and unpredictable environment, these robots would be next to useless. It's not for want of trying, either. Google bought Boston Dynamics, who made the famous Atlas robot, but after a few years, realising that they weren't going to make any profit anytime soon, they sold the company to SoftBank, who are now probably furthest ahead in humanoid robotics, at least. There would be a huge market for humanoid robots that could perform a wide variety of tasks. Just look at Japan, where David Runciman, of the Talking Politics podcast, remarks that they're basically banking on robots. As the population ages, by 2050, perhaps 40% of the population will be over 65 they anticipate that robots will perform the bulk of the heavy lifting and elder care that the society needs. They've invested millions of dollars, billions of yen, into research and development. But helper robots are still far from being widespread and far from effective. I don't say this to insult roboticists. It's an incredibly difficult thing they're trying to do, in the space of a few decades replicating what took evolution millions of years. But a lot can happen in 20 years in these fast-moving fields, and there certainly have been some pretty impressive strides made in the last 20 years. However, it seems far more likely to me, at least, that AI algorithms and machine learning will be what makes people redundant first, before people's physical bodies are actually redundant. Already, we have self-driving car algorithms that are comparable to humans. In a few years, once the regulatory and legal issues are dealt with and there's time for things to roll out, we'll probably start to see them on the roads. That's why the Oxford study estimates in the next 20 years an 89% chance of automation for taxi drivers. The counter-argument to this that you often hear is that, well, previous industries have been automated in the past and people have simply moved on to other jobs instead. In Britain, the Chancellor said something to this effect on TV. He said, quote, I remember 20 years ago, we were worrying about what was going to happen to the million shorthand typists in Britain as the personal computer took over. Well, nobody has a shorthand typist these days, but where are all these unemployed people? Of course, what happened then was that a lot of people quoted him out of context to say that he was out of touch, 
and it does take a lot for me to defend a politician. But, but the point is that the classic counter-argument is that waves of automation have happened in the past, and the unemployment rate hasn't shot up. The Luddites who smashed up factories eventually moved on and found new jobs as management consultants or whatever. Now I think in this case of this new wave of automation, it will end up being true to a certain extent. But unemployment statistics really don't even begin to tell the full story. Unemployment is manipulated by governments and corporations. Just because you don't show up as unemployed in the statistics doesn't mean you haven't suffered economically. Maybe you used to have a job in manufacturing that paid a decent wage and allowed you to live a middle-class lifestyle, and now you work in something that pays less well. Maybe you used to be a taxi driver with some degree of job security and a reasonable paycheck, and now you're making pennies out of Uber. The real issue I have with this counter-argument is the rate of change. The thing with personal computers making people redundant, personal computers took time to spread. They are physical objects. You have to build them, you have to refine them, companies have to buy them and make the transition. The first personal computer showed up until 1975. It took until the late 1980s and early 1990s for them to be adopted in offices. And it really took until the turn of the century for them to start being ubiquitous. That's 20-odd years between the start of the technology and things becoming completely ubiquitous. That's long enough for you to learn how to use that computer. And of course, many of the shorthand typists that didn't go mysteriously redundant would do just that. They'd learn Microsoft Office, they'd learn Microsoft Excel, they'd take on slightly different secretarial duties, but essentially, you know, similar administrative things to what was done before. As the economy grew, the amount of secretarial work also increased, and so there was no massive Luddite conspiracy of typists smashing up disks of Microsoft Word and desktop PCs. But AI and machine learning algorithms are different. We have the internet, and we have computer infrastructure. If someone develops an algorithm tomorrow that can, say, analyse medical scans better, or, God forbid, script and record more entertaining podcasts, There really aren't that many limits to adoption, are there? Everyone could download it and start using it tomorrow. The people who are displaced by AI in this way are not going to have any time to retrain. They won't have any time to learn to use the new technology to their advantage. They will simply be replaced. And consider the self-driving car, the transportation and logistics issue as well. If you are a shorthand typist, and suddenly there's a computer and everyone can type, there might still be related, adjacent work, secretarial work for you to move into. But if your job involves driving people around, and suddenly all driving is done by algorithm, what do you move into? What's adjacent to that? What other occupation can you find yourself doing? What adjacent skills do you have? You know, It doesn't seem like it's that obvious that people will be able to switch. The slower rate of adoption will still be the case for robotics, and that's why I think that any job that involves actual physical activities will last a lot longer if this big wave of automation arrives. And that's why I think that many people project that care work will be around for a long time to come, and is a pretty good industry to go into for job security. The population is ageing in the West and more carers will be needed. You need to be manually dexterous and also capable of dealing with a wide range of different situations. These are things that robots and artificial intelligence traditionally find very difficult. This is the key, though, to how automation will happen. It's not the, quote, easy jobs or the, quote, low-skilled jobs that will be replaced. It's the formulaic jobs, the algorithmic jobs, the jobs that can be turned into a repetitive list of instructions or cracked by brute force algorithms. 
A classic example is that of the paralegal. Paralegals used to wade through pages upon pages of case law looking for the relevant legal cases. This is a skilled job. I wouldn't even know where to begin. You obviously need to be educated in the law so that you know what's relevant, and you need to be able to read at a very high technical level to understand what you're reading. But it's increasingly being done by cleverly programmed algorithms. Similarly, you can hardly perform medical diagnoses with no education at all. That's another very skilled job, or at least you'd want the people who are doing that to be skilled. But it's also at risk of automation, with people searching for healthcare AIs that can diagnose people via questionnaires, and search databases for symptoms, as well as using machine learning to analyse scans and determine which patients are healthy and which are unhealthy. One thing that people often like to point out when we talk about this kind of neural network is that, in fact, it's not completely independent of humans, because they have been trained by masses of classifications that have been provided by humans. And this is where we get into a really interesting area that I don't think we've fully resolved, and maybe a lot of people don't even see as a problem. But consider, for example, Google's translation algorithm. That fills a role that used to be very, very valuable for translators. It used to be that there would be high demand for quick, low-quality translations of something. Let's say you've got an email that's in another language and you want to check what it is. Well, you know, if you have to send that to a translator and say, can you have it for me done by the evening just to get the gist of it or something along those lines, then that's the kind of thing that is now being done by an algorithm. There's still room for niche translations in the case of things like poetry, where Google would completely mangle it. And indeed, one of my friends is a good translator of poetry, so I'm sure she'll be happy to hear me say that. But one thing that people need to think about is... But one thing people need to think about is, where did Google's translation algorithm learn French? Where did it learn Slovenian? It learnt it from humans. It learnt it from the human translations and the human translators that put their information into that. And yet, those humans never get any of the profit or any of the benefit from people using Google Translate anymore. Instead, their workload has been shrunk massively, and now there's not enough room for translation to be an industry that can support nearly as many people as it used to. In a similar way, the machine learning algorithms that diagnose patient scans rely on this input of human expertise, human information, human skill. You train your neural network, and it replaces you. That's what happens, effectively. Perhaps in the future there might be some legal requirement, there might be some compensatory relationship whereby people's expertise that they feed into these AI is um, somehow charged and you know sent back to them in some way. Because after all, otherwise, it's almost theft of intellectual property, isn't it? Of course, we don't see it that way yet. But imagine there was an AI that could perfectly recreate new Beatles songs or new Radiohead songs or new Neutral Milk Hotel songs and so on. And I started selling them because I'd programmed the code. Surely some of the royalties could go to the band who originally came up with that creative expression in the first place, right? For more on stuff like this, you want to read uh, Jérôme Lanier. Uh, I'll put a link to some of his stuff in the show notes, but he first made me think about this idea in the translation point of view. And you can see that, perhaps, in a society that deals better with automation and the coming trends, this will be the kind of thing that will build into our systems. But then on the other hand, look at the internet. That is a system supported entirely by advertising, and that has lots of ill effects. And, you know, the idea that people are going to build clever, forth-thinking things into their systems to ensure that creatives and creators and humans get paid at the end of it is not necessarily so true as that people will build systems that can make them lots and lots of profit very quickly. But anyway, enough about whose intellectual property is in these neural networks. 
let's talk about the jobs that are likely to survive. The jobs that are likely to survive, according to the experts. Anything that requires a great deal of creativity. Although there are AI algorithms that can generate music and art, people aren't yet enjoying them on quite the same level, and you feel like it will be a very long time, because creativity is a fundamentally very a very human thing that relies on life experience and understanding of emotional relationships and evocativeness and so on. They also think that anything that requires building relationships with people, so that is health and social care, mental health professionals, business roles that rely on being close to clients. Now the first two of these categories are interesting because they essentially relate to humans. I mean, humans aren't necessarily going to feel like art created by an AI has a soul, or if they do they'll have to rationalise it in some way to think that it will be a spiritual machine or something like that. And of course humans will probably resist robots coming in. I mean, would you want to imagine a robot taking care of you when you got old, or, or being a mental health worker that's helping you, like Siegfried von Schrink in uh, in the Gateway novels? I don't think that's good. The third one is a little bit more to do with the nature of the task, and that's anything that's unpredictable and requires you to deal with a wide variety of different situations, creatively, in a sense. And that's just because it's much harder to turn that into an algorithm if it's unpredictable. If there's lots of different variations, you can't account for everything when you code it up. So we've got creativity, we've got relationship building, and we've got unpredictable work. And those are the kinds of jobs that are most likely to survive automation for as long as possible in the view of the world where everything gets automated. So you can see that rather than a, quote, skilled versus unskilled paradigm, we're instead dealing with things like creativity, unpredictability, building relationships with people... Even so, this leaves a lot of jobs that can potentially be automated. There are two general viewpoints you see on this, because it tends to be the case that we like nice and simple viewpoints that you can easily put on either side of an argument. The people who are convinced that there's going to be an AI job apocalypse say that the change is coming too fast, that there's nowhere else for jobs in the Western world to go to. After all, agriculture and manufacturing are mostly automated or outsourced. If we have the service industry jobs that many people went to starting to be automated as well, there won't be much left. Some of these people say we need vast government expenditure, training people for the jobs of the future, and retraining people in jobs as they go obsolete. Others go even further and say that what we really need is a universal basic income. That is to say, the increased productivity due to the machines that will be provided by the world taken over by artificial intelligence these economic gains will be distributed to the people who are made unemployed. With enough money to live, they'll be able to spend their time retraining. They'll be able to find fulfilling things to do. Lots of big Silicon Valley names have said that they think we'll need universal basic income. Ray Kurzweil, who wrote the book on the singularity, consults for Google, and, full disclosure, probably owns the website that I write for, Singularity Hub. Elon Musk also says so, another Silicon Valley darling, and the co-founder of Facebook also says that we need universal basic income. This has been derided in some quarters. Just the other day I heard a classical Marxist scholar, David Harvey, say on Intercepted, and I think that the dream of the Silicon Valley is to give us all a universal basic income so that we can sit on a couch and just binge watch on Netflix, and that will be our life. And then of course we can continue to consume their products and services from Silicon Valley, and there will be more eyes on Facebook and their advertising revenues will be worth more. To an extent, the idea of UBI seems a little bit patronising, no matter how much the gurus present it as the future that we're all dreaming of, where robots do all the work and we live lives of leisure. And it can get even darker than that. 
I recently heard Jaron Lanier, who I mentioned before, one of the pioneers behind VR technology, noting that some of the people in Silicon Valley behind closed doors point to the opioid crisis in the US as, quote, a good thing. After all, in their minds, all these people will shortly be redundant, or maybe they're already redundant. It's a good thing that they're sedated, because they will be soon. Is this our future, really? Dividing into two groups, the useful and the sedated? Of course, in many ways, the idea is nothing new. This was what Karl Marx was predicting in the Communist Manifesto, that machines would do the work of people, and that there'd be enough wealth such that we could all work a couple of days a week. It turns out that instead we adopted a consumerist model that requires endlessly more things to consume. Instead of all the work being done at some point, the work just expanded to fill the space. This, broadly, is what people who don't believe in the robo-apocalypse for jobs say. They say there will be new industries, new requirements, new ways of getting to full employment. They'll argue that automation isn't always what it's cracked up to be. It never has been. After all, think about it like this. Imagine that VHS has just been invented, video cassettes as a technology, and everyone's talking about what it's going to do to the world now that we have videos that we can store, transmit, and play again later. And I now say to you, the days of teaching as a profession are numbered. You only need a few good teachers to record the lesson centrally, the best teachers, and we'll be able to spread those cassettes around and everyone will be taught by the best possible teacher. Heck, you might not even need schools anymore. Everyone can just watch and learn from the comfort of their own home. Not only will all these people be replaced, but they'll be replaced by something better. After all, nearly everyone learns the same curriculum, and as teachers are clearly some of them are better than others, everyone can be taught by the best teachers. What a utopia we'll live in with our new technology. It sounds somewhat logical, and to an extent things like this started to happen. But instead we found that there was still a desire and prestige and, well, inertia to in-person learning. I could have learned a lot of what I learned in my physics degree from home. Go on to iTunes U, a vastly underappreciated resource by the way, and you can watch lectures by the same people who lectured me. In fact, some of them will be better than the ones I ended up attending, or missing for totally non-hangover-related reasons. You can find and solve the problem sheets online too. The textbooks are all over the internet. It was only the few hours a week that we spent with a tutor that was irreplaceable, and even then there's Skype. After that, there's just the lab work that you really have to do in person, but of course, for plenty of people's degrees, you don't need even need that. You could do everything completely remotely. But that's hardly made people redundant. It's hardly made teachers redundant. The universities, the old universities, haven't gone entirely online, even though massive online learning courses have been more popular. The aspects of the job that required humans, or our desire to have it done by humans, turned out to be more important. And another important fact is that the process of getting a degree, of going away, physically living in a different place, surrounded by students for X number of years and thinking about X topic, this structure turned out to be very, very resilient, even though you might imagine that it would be destroyed. And the reason why is because human psychology is behind that. We as students prefer that. We as students are better able to adapt to that. It feels somehow more important if you have to go to a different location to do it. And as fast as technology changes, human psychology doesn't. If anything, it's the fact that human psychology and societal values can't keep up with the pace of change of technology that leads to so many of the negative facts and negative impacts that we have now. If human morality and human law and so on had kept up with the translation technologies and ensured that all those people who translated were pay paid a small amount of the 
profits, then perhaps things would have gone better for that industry. Instead, the technologies have been used as tools by the people they were supposed to replace. The typists learnt to use Microsoft Word and became more productive. The teachers used online resources to help them, rather than being replaced by online courses. That kind of thing. Of course, hundreds of people have written very intelligent things on the future of work and automation. Reducing it all to these two diametrically opposed viewpoints as I have done is very reductive, but I hope the outline isn't too far wrong. And I feel like a lot of opinions do fall on a sliding scale somewhere between these two extremes of it will all be fine or it's the job apocalypse. Because, as I say, we like to think in that way. It's that millennialist thinking that we talked about in the psychology of the end of the world. That's just how we conceive of things. Having introduced the problem, then, next episode, I'll go into a massive rant about my own personal perspective on what's going on. It will probably get political, and I'll probably annoy everyone who's listening to this at some point during the rant. I certainly won't present any solutions, so, you know, you can skip that if you want. But if you want to hear me get fired up, it'll be fun. See you then. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction, the show that drifts into all kinds of different topics about physics, science, technology, and the future. If you've enjoyed anything that we've said, anything that we've done, you can thank us by going to Twitter and talking to us. You can go to the website, www.physicspodcast.com, where you'll find a donate link that can help you to support the show. I do this all in my quote-unquote free time for zero money, negative money, really. And, you know, if you wanted to show your appreciation that way, you could do it. But another wonderful way for you to show your appreciation is just to tell anyone you know, anyone who might be interested in listening, to give us a listen. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, it's knowing that there are people out there listening to my ramblings that makes me feel a lot better about the whole thing. Until next time then, don't let a robot take your job. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.